In the church, that's our thing. Jesus is alive. Uh, Christians get very worked up about this. Um, for, for church folk, uh, Easter, the, the cross and the resurrection, is actually a way bigger deal and, and more important than Christmas. Well, we like Christmas, but we know Christmas has a purpose. He was born so that he would go to the cross and he would die so that uh, we would have life. And that resurrection affirms his victory over Satan, sin, and death at uh, the cross. So uh, some people would say it this way, this is our Super Bowl weekend. This is a, this is a big deal uh, to us. But this question constantly haunts me. For 20 years, I've been a pastor, Christian before that as well. This question always haunts me about Easter. Uh, what does it really mean? What is the so what of the resurrection? Uh, beyond the empty tomb, beyond the flowers blooming, which are beautiful, uh, beyond the anticipation of a champagne brunch later on today, what? What of it? Uh, I've found that most people who come to church on Easter, uh, churched people and unchurched people, uh, lots of people come to a church on Easter for various reasons, but not necessarily the rest of the year. I've found that m most people who come to church on Easter pretty much hear the same thing. They hear the same message. And I've found that they leave with pretty much the same impression. Okay, yeah, I get it. Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he, he rose from the dead. So, anything else? Anything else? So what I'm going to do today is a little bit different for Easter. I'm, I'm going to talk about that, so what? Uh, and that's going to take a little bit more work. And I'm going to do more speaking today than I, am, than I am preaching. And we're going to work through a passage in the New Testament that, frankly, if you just read the passage without any context, without any setting, if you didn't understand the history of it, uh, it, would, it would leave you with way more questions than you had before you read the passage because it's confusing without the setting and the context. For those people who are immersed in church culture, for many of them, not all of them, um, uh, they get this passage. But if you're not, to just hear this passage, it would be difficult to understand without some of that teaching about the background and the history. Uh, yet I'd argue that this passage is critical, and not just critical, but essential it's essential to our understanding of what Easter means and, frankly, to what the Christian faith is, is all about. It's central. This passage is central to the Christian faith. And I would say it's really good. Once you begin to understand this passage, it's one of those go-to passages that you just go back to over and over and over and read and marvel at. So what we're going to talk about comes from the second letter that the Apostle Paul writes to this big influential, wealthy church in Corinth, which is an ancient Greek city. And he wrote this somewhere in the mid-50s, uh, approximately 25 years after the very first Easter Sunday took place. And it's in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, you want to get, get your phones out, you can. If you want to look up on the screens, we're going to have it up on uh, the screens as well. So this Apostle Paul guy, Paul was what we would call a true non-believer for the first 30 years of his life. In fact, he was so committed to his view of the world, his view of, of life, his view 
of the resurrection, which he believed did not in fact take place. He was so committed to that view that he was spending his entire life, his entire service to humanity, pursuing people who believed in Jesus and persecuting them and imprisoning them and even executing them. You maybe have heard of the Apostle Paul. Time magazine several years ago said that he's one of the five most influential people in history, the Apostle Paul, and yet he used to murder people for their beliefs. Um, some of you here today, you, you might be just ambivalent about Jesus, about the resurrection, about Christianity. Not Paul. <laughs> Paul wasn't ambivalent about it. He was the picture of hostility toward the cross, toward Jesus. But his life was subsequently transformed by Jesus. And so later on, he writes to this church in Corinth, which is a church that he helped start some years earlier, in order to tell them and to tell us today the so what of the resurrection. And he does this out of experience and his own personal encounter with the risen Christ and his new understanding. Once he has that encounter with the risen Christ, his new understanding of all the Hebrew scriptures that he was an expert in for the first 30 years of his life, that he was trained in, because he was a Pharisee. He was one of those who would persecute even uh, Jesus. Uh, Jesus had been crucified and then raised. And one of the things that Jesus did after uh, his resurrection was he appeared uh, to Paul when Paul was on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus with um, letters of authority from the ruling religious council in Jerusalem to go to Damascus, find people of the way, find Christians, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem to be tried for heresy and executed. And that's when Jesus appeared to Paul. And Paul had a change of heart, and he had a change of mind. So we're going to pick it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses, and then we're going to talk about it all the way through. That's what we're going to do to the end of chapter 5. Starting in verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So he says, we're doing this out of the fear of the Lord. And this is not a, this is not a fear that you're frightened or you're paralyzed into inaction. That's not the kind of fear that Paul is talking about here. Rather, this fear is one of reverence, one of awe, one of worship and praise. It's, it's the fear that gets genera uh, generated when you begin to realize that you're a little smaller than you thought you were, and God is much bigger than you ever thought he might be. But you begin to realize that it's out of his love that he has done this for you through his son, Jesus Christ. And it generates a fear that, that, that is of reverence and awe, and you want to bow down and you want to worship him. Uh, the Bible is replete, Old Testament and New Testament, with, uh, just in Proverbs, for instance, it says this, the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, is the beginning of wisdom, understanding, and discretion. Th that in order for us to be able to see the world as it really is, you heard Cody's prayer just now, 
to see the world as it really is, that it's a very dark place. It's a very difficult place. To see the world as it really is, we have to start with fearing who God is, revering who He is, submitting our will to His, and that's the beginning of wisdom, that's the beginning of knowledge, that's the beginning of discernment when we begin to see the world the way he does. So what Paul is talking about specifically as a result of that fear to begin with in verses 11 uh, and 12, uh, what he's saying here is, uh, and I could think of no other word. I even looked it up with a thesaurus and everything. I looked at everything. I couldn't, no other word worked here. But, But what he's saying is that a huge part of the shtick of charlatans, of false teachers and con artists is their constant effort to commend themselves, to talk themselves up, um, to have the right outward image, the right outward appearance, but of course on the inside they are filled with deceit. Uh, Jesus would describe them as empty whitewashed uh, tombs. So Paul is saying that's not what's happening here when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you, you must know that that's not what's happening simply by the way you have observed us living our lives. He says, rather, we preach the true gospel no matter what it does to our reputation. We don't care that preaching the gospel is going to damage our reputation. We don't care that preaching the gospel is going to put us in danger. We don't care that preaching the gospel might actually thin out the flock rather than expand the flock. We preach the gospel not so that we have a big church, but we preach it so that we have a true church. And church, that's what we are called to do. He says we preach the true gospel not because we're trying for wealth acquisition or fame, which are two of our biggest false gods or idols in our culture today, Rather, he says, we preach it because we want people to know the one true God. And and, and he's saying this because he's saying, look, the more I know God, the more I know Jesus, out of fear and reverence for God, the smaller I become. That's the way it's supposed to work. He is bigger, I am smaller. The more I get to know Jesus. It's John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, pointing at Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He must increase and I must decrease. That is not the way of the false teacher. That is not the way of the con artist. That is not the way of the charlatan. The charlatan wants to increase. He may put on a pretense of humility, but he wants to increase. That's the problem. And he says, our outer appearance is not a facade hiding inner corruption, deception, and ulterior motives. In fact, I'm not even taking a salary, Paul says. I am making tents and earning my money that way so that I can serve without any understanding that it might be for my own personal wealth acquisition. That was Paul's life. And it's funny that he would say this now because in the chapter just before this chapter is when he records these words. Though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. It's almost as if he's unpacking that little verse uh, right there. So he says, we don't want you to boast in the messenger. We want you to boast in the message and the one that the message is about. That's what's important. That's what's key. So then he says in verse 13, 
He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, there you go. There's, there's a, what exactly does that mean? Okay. Well, it, it, just a little bit of digging and you begin to figure out what it is. Uh, some people, you, you begin to look at the entire life of Paul, uh, his writings and everything, and you begin to understand that some people looked at Paul, they saw Paul, they heard Paul, and they think he's crazy. They do. They, he was accused of being crazy because he had passion about his salvation. He had joy and gratitude about his salvation. He proclaimed Jesus is risen, something that he never thought he would ever say or proclaim. He had this passion, this joy, this exuberance, and people looked at him and thought he was crazy. And I will tell you, I, I was decidedly anti-Christian until I was 28 years old. I was not a believer until I was 28 years old. And I will tell you, anybody who talked about Jesus, I thought they were crazy. I thought they were nuts. I thought they were beside themselves. But others, others hear and see Paul, they engage Paul, and they found him persuasive. Uh, they, they found that uh, he was accessible. He could talk about these religious things in ways that they could understand he used tremendous logic that was consistent with the biblical record, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was not only guiding his message, but the Holy Spirit was also applying the message of God to the heart of the hearer. And so some people didn't think he was beside himself, but they found it quite normal. And so, so Paul was both passionate and he was well-versed in the academics and discipline of the Christian faith. So the passion, the exuberance, the excitement, the willingness to appear foolish is generally an expression of gratitude for God, gratitude for His grace, His love, and His mercy, which Paul knows he did not deserve. He used to go and persecute and execute Christians, and Jesus came to him and said, not only am I going to save you out of that life, but then I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to redeem it and I'm going to use you as a testimony and as a witness. So, of course, Paul was excited, passionate, and exuberant. It, it just it reminds me of in 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, chapter 6, when, when God had been so gracious to King David and shown him so much favor, and David danced. He danced through the city, and his wife said, you're being a fool. You're being a fool. His own wife said that to him. He says, no, I am celebrating God. Those who understand the gospel are usually pretty excited about it. They're, they're thankful, and they're filled with joy. So this is for God. When we're beside ourselves, when we cannot but talk about Jesus, we are beside ourselves. It's, it is for God. It's praise and worship. But Paul also had a way of explaining the gospel that, like I said, was accessible to people. People could hear it. I remember the first time 30 years ago that I sat in a Bible study that I did not want to be at where Tom Schrader was teaching, and Tom taught in a way that was accessible to me. There were 200 people in this room, and it was absolutely filled that, that I was sitting in. And I felt like Tom was sitting in his living room easy chair just having a conversation with me. It was so accessible. I knew nothing, but what I knew was that Tom knew how to communicate.
the gospel in an accessible and true way to me during that time. It, it had a profound influence on my life. Tom, by the way, for those of you that don't know, he's one of our founding pastors here at Redemption Church. So Paul explains things so that people can understand it as well. And he says that part is for us. That's for us. Now, this is important to grasp. Some people really want Jesus to be nothing but all about feelings and dancing and fluffy, gushy, euphoric, all cupcakes and muffins. They have a cupcakes and muffins Jesus. And that's not a bad thing unless it's the only thing. You don't have the full package at that point. Now, there are also, on the other side of that coin, there are others who want Jesus to be nothing but a cognitive cerebral exercise, okay? They attend a Bible study, and their question after that Bible study ends is, when's the next Bible study? And then it's another Bible study after that, and then they attend the Bible study, which studies how to do better Bible studies, and that's all they ever do. And Bible study is not a bad thing. I like Bible study. But if it's the only thing, you're missing the boat. You are, as Tom would say, sorry if this offends you, you are spiritually constipated. You need to let a little of that out, okay? You need to let it go just a little bit, okay? So I, I, had, to, I had to prep the staff. To t I, had to, I had to let them know in advance that I was actually going to quote a tiny little verse from an old Sonic Flood song because that, it's so cheesy. Some of you are like, Sonic Flood, what's that? Others of you are like, yeah, cheesy stuff. Cheesy stuff. Okay, but, but I think they get this right. It's cheesy and it's simple, but they get this right. Here it is. I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. I want to know you more. They get it right. They want to know Jesus, and they want to have a relationship with Jesus, and that's what we sing about. Right now, the staff is in the green room rolling their eyes, okay? But they also know the truth of those verses. Here you go. It's the Westminster Confession of Faith. Sonic Flood has paraphrased the Westminster Confession of Faith. The chief end of human beings is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Glorify Him is shorthand for know God and enjoy Him forever. Know Him and be in relationship with him. Verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. I'll talk a little bit about that word translated controls. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. There's the so what. He died for us, so now we live for him, okay? And, and what, he, what Paul is talking about here is he's actually, this is a reference to uh, Adam. A Adam was the first man, and he and Eve committed the first sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. And, and since that time, everything in the world, everything in the universe has been corrupted by them breaking relationship with God by committing that first sin. Yes, they, they ate from the, the, the tree. They ate the fruit. What's so bad about that? What's so bad about that is they had thousands of other trees to eat from, and God said, there's this one tree you can't eat from, you can eat from all the others. They couldn't hold back. They had to eat from that tree. They broke relationship with God, and that sin, that corruption, has been imputed to all of us and all of creation, everything. Everything is broken. And what, what Paul is saying here is 
that what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection reverses that curse. It takes care of it. It redeems all of that. It restores everything. It makes everything right. And so as a result, he says, the love of Christ compels us. Compels us. It compels us. The love of Christ is, is something that, that takes our lives and out of joy, we finally begin to resist doing the things that we shouldn't do and we begin to, we are compelled, we are called to doing the things that we're supposed to do, that God calls us to do. It's not perfect yet because we're not in the new Jerusalem yet, but nevertheless, now at least we have the mind of Christ, we have the eyes of Christ. We're able to see the difference and we're able to know what we're supposed to do what we're not supposed to do, what we're called to do, what we're not called to do. The gospel is a gospel of liberty and freedom. We are free from sin. It is not a gospel of prison and legal entrapment, as some have tried to make it. It's a gospel of freedom. Verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, From now on, therefore, we regard, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So verses 16 and 17 further explain the transformation of the believer. It's not just about how the love of Christ compels us, but rather now we specifically begin to understand that the things of the world are no longer the things that bring us ultimate fulfillment. They're no longer the things that bring us ultimate joy. We know now, because of the resurrection, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ, and the love of God, we know that we need to live by a different paradigm. We're called to it. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, which enables us uh, to do that. For instance, in Paul's case, Paul specifically talks about this in his letter to the church at Philippi in chapter 3. In Paul's case, he talks about how all of his wealth, all of his education, all of his former religious achievements, his, his ethnic ties, his national ties, he talked about it every, his entire resume of his achievements and, and success. Here you go, how some people have described it in chapter 3 of Philippians, his personal resume of holiness. He says, that no longer defines who I am. He says, it's rubbish compared to the surpassing love of the risen Christ. His identity, he's saying, is now in Christ. And so for us today, what we begin to understand is that those things that we're pursuing, and here's, the, here's what's so hard about this. These things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. They're not bad things, and we're not calling you not to pursue them. This is not a gospel of anti-ambition, but those things that we pursue that we think are going to fulfill us the way only God can fulfill us, so power and status and wealth and comfort, worldly success and fame, they're not bad in and of themselves. But if, they're the, if we make them the ultimate thing, that's a problem. And so we take those things in our lives and we subjugate them to joy and gratitude and love and service and honor of others. Last week, Cody's sermon, he talked about how those things are not bad in and of themselves, but if you make them your shepherds, if you make those things your master, if you make those things your God, they are really bad shepherds. Tom used to say, false gods never fail to fail. Sooner or later, whatever it is that you have made a god in your life, it's going to fail you. And that's what Paul is saying here. 
So this is important to understand. When, when we come to Jesus, you and I enter into God's kingdom. What doesn't happen is when we come to Jesus, Jesus and God enter our kingdom and are subjugated to our kingdom. That's not what happens, but that's how so many of us try to live. Yeah, I believe in Jesus now, but he's just kind of tagging along with what I'm trying to accomplish here. No, we submit ourselves to his kingdom. And the gospel produces minds and hearts that are transformed. And we find out in the very next verse that salvation is actually the Lord's. This is all the work of God in our lives. Verses 18 through 20. All of this is from God. We haven't done anything. We haven't, that's the beauty of this. That's what grace is. Unmerited favor. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Larry Wright <clears throat> who was a great Bible teacher years ago. I just, I'm just curious. I have to ask. I'm just curious. Anybody ever actually hear Larry teach? I heard. Yeah, see, there's people in this room who've heard Larry teach. Uh, he used to say this all the time when he would teach on this passage. He would say, you know, our job title as Christians is pretty impressive. We're ambassadors. We are emissaries. We are sent with the message of God. And then he would say, but our job description, not so impressive. We're servants. We are submitted to the master. We do what he calls us to do. We don't have the authority in this game. And as such, we become ministers of reconciliation. Now, if I say that two people have been reconciled, just, if I just say that, nothing else, what can you assume about those two people? Well, they were at war with each other. They were at odds with each other. Here's the problem. Our sin puts us at odds with God. We are at war with God. And the death and resurrection of Jesus solves that problem. We're now reconciled. In other words, we are made one with God. And I, 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 know, I know this. I've taught this enough to know this. There are people right now kind of bristling, kind of going, what are you talking about? I'm not at war with God. He does his thing, I do my thing, and we don't bother each other. Well, two things I just want to bring up, just for you to consider, okay? Here's, here's the first one. Why are you here today then? What are you doing? Did you lose a bet? Is that why you're here? Is that what happened? You, you said there's no way the Patriots can lose the Super Bowl this year, and somebody said, if the Patriots win, you've got to come to Easter Sunday with me at Redemption Arcadia. Is that why you're here? Okay. Um, are you fulfilling a family obligation? That's not a bad thing. Good for you. You know, your family said, we're all going to church on Easter. Will you come with? That's great. That's great. Or, or maybe, maybe there's only one car at the house you're staying at, and if you want to go to brunch, you had to come to church. <laughs> maybe that's why you're here, okay? Isn't it just possible? Did you ever consider the possibility that God is actually using the people in your life and the circumstances in your life to get you here so that you could hear how much God loves you, that he loves you so much that he sent his son to the cross and he's been raised from the dead so that you can have life. Isn't that just, isn't it just even this much possible? There's a one in a million chance, Frank. Okay, but you're saying there's a chance. Okay? 
Well, second of all, here's the reality of it. You doing your thing and God doing his thing, that is the very definition of at war with God. If you're not doing God's thing, you're at war with him. In fact, here you go. You don't even know you're at war with God. That means you've already lost. You can't, you can't possibly know. You can't possibly be redeemed. We're here to say, here you go. He wants to know you. You have an opportunity to know him. And, and there's no way you can win this, quote, war on your own. You can't, you can't be a good enough person. You, you can't educate yourself enough. Uh, no act of service can extricate you from this situation with God. The only hope we have is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the only one. It's only the grace of God is manifest through his son that can reconcile us to God. The last verse, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This might be the most profound verse in all the Bible. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to preach it today or speak on it or teach on it, whatever you want to call it. Jesus, here you go. You need to understand this. Jesus was not made a sinner. He was made sin. There's a huge difference. Jesus was not a sinner and he was not made a sinner. He is, he was made sin so that God could judge that sin for us. He was made the condition that puts us at war with God. The very condition that puts us at war with God. He made Jesus that condition so he could judge it. So he could pour out, as Josh and Cody have talked about, his cup of wrath on Jesus and not on us. That's good news. That is awesome. You know, Easter, look, so many of us, myself included, I mean, so, somebody walked up to me today and said, okay, either, either you're doing a, a wedding, a funeral, or he is risen. That's the only time you wear a tie, right? Okay? So we, we get dressed up for Easter. That's great. That's great. It, that's a good thing. You know, we want to wear our best for God because God has given his best for us. That's a, that's a, that's a really good thing. Okay? But what we need to remember that that up until Easter, it was a profound mess. It was jacked up. They took Jesus, an innocent man. They tried him unethically, cruelly. They beat him to within an inch of his life. They, didn't, they then pounded nails into his hands and feet, put him up on a cross for people to mock him. He was naked. It was a mess. We are a mess without Jesus. How can we look at the world, even sitting here in Arcadia, which is pretty nice, how can we look at the world and not understand what a mess it is? We need Easter. We need the resurrection. We need it corporately, and we need it individually because he became our substitute, and now we can be reconciled to God. And yet, and yet, he lives so that we have eternal life. His death is our death to sin and its eternal effects. His resurrection is our eternal life. So as he lives, we now live. And again, so many of us see the cross as defeat. It wasn't defeat for Jesus. It wasn't defeat for God. It was dark and it was sad and it was messy. But it was actually victory for God and his people over Satan, sin, and death. The cross was victory 
And then the resurrection was merely the affirmation of that victory. That's what it is. Easter is the greatest payment plan ever in history. Here's what it would be like. Those of you that have a mortgage, imagine this. Uh, the bank comes and knocks on your door, and they say to you, we foreclosed on your neighbor over there. We foreclosed on that house. And now you no longer have to pay your mortgage. That's what Jesus did, only for something profoundly more important than our house. And that's what Easter means. At the end of uh, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was on the cross, and he had just died. And Mark 15, 39 says this, And when the centurion, who stood facing Jesus, saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. That was victory. So if you're looking for reconciliation, you're looking for righteousness, you're looking for how you can glorify God, here's how you can glorify God. He is glorified when you know him, so come to Jesus. That's our appeal today, come to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, our prayer is for all of us in this room right now. For those who don't know you, for those who do know you, uh, to more deeply and profoundly understand what you have done for us so that we might live, so that we can live in joy and gratitude. And God, for those who uh, really, you, you might just say that they're here kicking the tires about this, this whole Jesus notion. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit moves in their lives, in their hearts. God, that you would save them, that you, you would reconcile them to yourself. God, we pray that for everybody. We, we pray that across Maricopa County this morning. We pray that in all redemption churches, all other churches that are having Easter services this morning. We pray that your, your word would be heard and that people would respond. You are the great initiator. We are the ones that respond, God. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.